This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 17, Part 3 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. The manly pride of the Romans, content with substantial power, had left to the vanity of the East the forms and ceremonies of ostentatious greatness. But when they lost even the semblance of those virtues which were derived from their ancient freedom, the simplicity of Roman manners was insensibly corrupted by the stately affectation of the courts of Asia. The distinctions of personal merit and influence, so conspicuous in a republic, so feeble and obscure under a monarchy, were abolished by the despotism of the emperors, who substituted in their room a severe subordination of rank and office, from the titled slaves who were seated on the steps of the throne, to the meanest instruments of arbitrary power. This multitude of abject dependents was interested in the support of the actual government from the dread of a revolution, which might at once confound their hopes and intercept the reward of their services. In this divine hierarchy, for such it is frequently styled, every rank was marked with the most scrupulous exactness, and its dignity was displayed in a variety of trifling and solemn ceremonies, which it was a study to learn and a sacrilege to neglect. The purity of the Latin language was debased by adopting, in the intercourse of pride and flattery, a profusion of epithets which Tully would scarcely have understood, and which Augustus would have rejected with indignation. The principal officers of the empire were saluted, even by the sovereign himself, with the deceitful titles of Your Sincerity, Your Gravity, Your Excellency, Your Eminence, Your Sublime and Wonderful Magnitude, Your Illustrious and Magnificent Highness. The codicils or patents of their office were curiously emblazoned with such emblems as were best adapted to explain its nature and high dignity. The image or portrait of the reigning emperors, a triumphal car, the book of mandates placed on a table covered with a rich carpet and illuminated by four tapers, the allegorical figures of the provinces which they governed, or the appellations and standards of the troops whom they commanded. Some of these official ensigns were really exhibited in their hall of audience, others preceded their pompous march whenever they appeared in public and every circumstance of their demeanour, their dress, their ornaments, and their train, was calculated to inspire a deep reverence for the representatives of supreme majesty. By a philosophic observer, the system of the Roman government might have been mistaken for a splendid theatre, filled with players of every character and degree, who repeated the language and imitated the passions of their original model. All the magistrates of sufficient importance to find a place in the general state of the empire were accurately divided into three classes. One, the illustrious. Two, the spectabiles, or respectable. And three, the clarissimi, whom we may translate by the word honourable. In the times of Roman simplicity, 
the last-mentioned epithet was used only as a vague expression of deference, till it became at length the peculiar and appropriated title of all who were members of the Senate, and consequently of all who, from that venerable body, were selected to govern the provinces. The vanity of those who, from their rank and office, might claim a superior distinction above the rest of the senatorial order, was long afterwards indulged with a new appellation of respectable, but the title of illustrious was always reserved to some eminent personages who were obeyed or reverenced by the two subordinate classes. It was communicated only, one, to the consuls and patricians, two, to the praetorian prefects with the prefects of Rome and Constantinople, three, to the masters-general of the cavalry and the infantry, and four, to the seven ministers of the palace, who exercised their sacred functions about the person of the emperor. Among those illustrious magistrates who were esteemed coordinate with each other, the seniority of appointment gave place to the union of dignities, by the expedient of honorary codicils, the emperors, who were fond of multiplying their favours, might sometimes gratify the vanity, though not the ambition, of impatient courtiers. As long as the Roman consuls were the first magistrates of a free state, they derived their right to power from the choice of the people. As long as the emperors condescended to disguise the servitude which they imposed, the consuls were still elected by the real or apparent suffrage of the senate. From the reign of Diocletian, even these vestiges of liberty were abolished, and the successful candidates who were invested with the annual honours of the consulship affected to deplore the humiliating condition of their predecessors. The Scipios and the Catos had been reduced to solicit the votes of plebeians, to pass through the tedious and expensive forms of a popular election, and to expose their dignity to the shame of a public refusal while their own happier fate had reserved them for an age and government in which the rewards of virtue were assigned by the unerring wisdom of a gracious sovereign. In the epistles which the emperor addressed to the two consuls-elect, it was declared that they were created by his sole authority. Their names and portraits, engraved on gilt tables of ivory, were dispersed over the empire as presents to the provinces, the cities, the magistrates, the senate, and the people. Their solemn inauguration was performed at the place of the imperial residence, and during a period of one hundred and twenty years Rome was constantly deprived of the presence of her ancient magistrates. On the morning of the first of January the consuls assumed the ensigns of their dignity. Their dress was a robe of purple, embroidered in silk and gold, and sometimes ornamented with costly gems. On this solemn occasion they were attended by the most eminent officers of the state and army, in the habit of senators, and the useless fasces, armed with the once formidable axes, were borne before them by the lictors. The processions moved from the palace to the forum, or principal square of the city, where the consuls ascended their tribunal, and seated themselves in the curul chairs, which were framed after the fashion of ancient times. They immediately exercised an act of jurisdiction by the manumission of a slave, who was brought before them for that purpose, and the ceremony was intended to represent the celebrated action of the elder Brutus, the author of liberty and of the consulship, 
when he admitted amongst his fellow-citizens the faithful Vindex, who had revealed the conspiracy of the Tarquins. The public festival was continued during several days in all the principal cities, in Rome from custom, in Constantinople from imitation, in Carthage, Antioch, and Alexandria from the love of pleasure and the superfluity of wealth. In the two capitals of the empire, the annual games of the theatre, the circus, and the amphitheatre cost four thousand pounds of gold, about one hundred and sixty thousand pounds sterling, and if so heavy an expense surpassed the faculties or the inclinations of the magistrates themselves, the sum was supplied from the imperial treasury. As soon as the consuls had discharged these customary duties, they were at liberty to retire into the shade of private life, and to enjoy, during the remainder of the year, the undisturbed contemplation of their own greatness. They no longer presided in the national councils. They no longer executed the resolutions of peace or war. Their abilities, unless they were employed in more effective offices, were of little moment, and their names served only as the legal date of the year in which they had filled the chair of Marius and of Cicero. Yet it was still felt and acknowledged in the last period of Roman servitude that this empty name might be compared and even preferred to the possession of substantial power. The title of consul was still the most splendid object of ambition, the noblest reward of virtue and loyalty. The emperors themselves, who disdained the faint shadow of the Republic, were conscious that they acquired an additional splendour and majesty as often as they assumed the annual honours of the consular dignity. The proudest and most perfect separation which can be found in any age or country between the nobles and the people is perhaps that of the patricians and the plebeians, as it was established in the first age of the Roman Republic. Wealth and honours, the offices of state, and the ceremonies of religion were almost exclusively possessed by the former, who, preserving the purity of their blood with the most insulting jealousy, held their clients in a condition of specious vassalage. But these distinctions, so incompatible with the spirit of a free people, were removed after a long struggle by the persevering efforts of the tribunes. The most active and successful of the plebeians accumulated wealth, aspired to honours, deserved triumphs, contracted alliances, and after some generations assumed the pride of ancient nobility. The patrician families, on the other hand, whose original number was never recruited till the end of the commonwealth, either failed in the ordinary course of nature, or were extinguished in so many foreign and domestic wars, or, through a want of merit or fortune, insensibly mingled with the mass of the people. Very few remained who could derive their pure and genuine origin from the infancy of the city, or even from that of the Republic, when Caesar and Augustus, Claudius and Vespasian, created from the body of the Senate a competent number of new patrician families, in the hope of perpetuating an order which was still considered as honourable and sacred. But these artificial supplies, in which the reigning house was always included, were rapidly swept away by the rage of tyrants, by frequent revolutions, by the change of manners, and by the intermixture of nations. Little more was left when Constantine ascended to the throne than a vague and imperfect tradition that the patricians had once been the first of the Romans. 
to form a body of nobles whose influence may restrain, while it secures the authority of the monarch, would have been very inconsistent with the character and policy of Constantine. But had he seriously entertained such a design, it might have exceeded the measure of his power to ratify, by an arbitrary edict, an institution which must expect the sanction of time and of opinion. He revived, indeed, the title of patricians, but he revived it as a personal, not as a hereditary distinction. They yielded only to the transient superiority of the annual consuls, but they enjoyed the pre-eminence over all the great officers of state with their most familiar access to the person of the prince. This honourable rank was bestowed on them for life, and as they were usually favourites and ministers who had grown old in the imperial court, the true etymology of the word was perverted by ignorance and flattery, and the patricians of Constantine were reverenced as the adopted fathers of the emperor and the republic. The fortunes of the Praetorian prefects were essentially different from those of the consuls and patricians. The latter saw their ancient greatness evaporate in a vain title. The former, rising by degrees from the most humble condition, were invested with the civil and military administration of the Roman world. From the reign of Severus to that of Diocletian, the guards and the palace, the laws and the finances, the armies and the provinces, were entrusted to their superintending care, and like the viziers of East, they held with one hand the seal, and with the other the standard, of the empire. The ambition of the prefects, always formidable and sometimes fatal to the masters whom they served, was supported by the strength of the Praetorian bands. But after those haughty troops had been weakened by Diocletian, and finally suppressed by Constantine, the prefects, who survived their fall, were reduced without difficulty to the station of useful and obedient ministers. When they were no longer responsible for the safety of the emperor's person, they resigned the jurisdiction which they had hitherto claimed, and exercised over all the departments of the palace. They were deprived by Constantine of all military command, as soon as they had ceased to lead into the field, under their immediate orders, the flower of the Roman troops, and at length, by a singular revolution, the captains of the guards were transformed into the civil magistrates of the provinces. According to the plan of government instituted by Diocletian, the four princes had each their praetorian prefect, and after the monarchy was once more united in the person of Constantine, he still continued to create the same number of four prefects, and entrusted to their care the same provinces which they already administered. One, the prefect of the east, stretched his ample jurisdiction into the three parts of the globe which were subject to the Romans, from the cataracts of the Nile to the banks of the Pharsis, and from the mountains of Thrace to the frontiers of Persia. Two, the important provinces of Pannonia, Dacia, Macedonia, and Greece all acknowledged the authority of the prefect of Illyricum. Three, the power of the prefect of Italy was not confined to the country from whence he derived his title. It extended over the additional territory of Raetia as far as the banks of the Danube, over the dependent islands of the Mediterranean, and over that part of the continent of Africa which lies between the confines of Cyrene and those of Tingitania. 
For the prefect of the Gauls comprehended under that plural denomination the kindred provinces of Britain and Spain, and his authority was obeyed from the wall of Antoninus to the foot of Mount Atlas. After the Praetorian prefects had been dismissed from all military command, the civil functions which they were ordained to exercise over so many subject nations were adequate to the ambition and abilities of the most consummate ministers. To their wisdom was committed the supreme administration of justice and of the finances, the two objects which, in a state of peace, comprehend almost all the respective duties of the sovereign and of the people of the former to protect the citizens who are obedient to the laws, of the latter to contribute the share of their property which is required for the expenses of the state. The coin, the highways, the posts, the granaries, the manufactures, whatever could interest the public prosperity, was moderated by the authority of the Praetorian prefects. As the immediate representatives of the imperial majesty, they were empowered to explain, to enforce, and on some occasions to modify, the general edicts by their discretionary proclamations. They watched over the conduct of the provincial governors, removed the negligent, and inflicted punishments on the guilty. From all the inferior jurisdictions, an appeal in every matter of importance, either civil or criminal, might be brought before the tribunal of the prefect, but his sentence was final and absolute, and the emperors themselves refused to admit any complaints against the judgment or the integrity of a magistrate whom they had honoured with such unbounded confidence. His appointments were suitable to his dignity, and if avarice was his rule in passion, he enjoyed frequent opportunities of collecting a rich harvest of fees, of presents, and of perquisites. Though the emperors no longer dreaded the ambition of their prefects, they were attentive to counterbalance the power of this great office by the uncertainty and shortness of its duration. From their superior importance and dignity, Rome and Constantinople were alone accepted from the jurisdiction of the Praetorian prefects. The immense size of the city and the experience of the tardy, ineffectual operation of the laws had furnished the policy of Augustus with a specious pretense for introducing a new magistrate, who alone could restrain a servile and turbulent populace by the strong arm of arbitrary power. Valerius Messala was appointed the first prefect of Rome, that his reputation might countenance so invidious a measure. But at the end of a few days that accomplished citizen resigned his office, declaring, with a spirit worthy of the friend of Brutus, that he found himself incapable of exercising a power incompatible with public freedom. As the sense of liberty became less exquisite, the advantages of order were more clearly understood, and the prefect, who seemed to have been designed as a terror only to slaves and vagrants, was permitted to extend his civil and criminal jurisdiction over the equestrian and noble families of Rome. The praetors, annually created as the judges of law and equity, could not long dispute the possession of the forum with a vigorous and permanent magistrate, who was usually admitted into the confidence of the prince. Their courts were deserted, their number, which had once fluctuated between twelve and eighteen, was gradually reduced to two or three, and their important functions were confined to the expensive obligation of exhibiting games for the amusement of the people. 
after the office of the Roman consuls had been changed into a vain pageant, which was rarely displayed in the capital, the prefects assumed their vacant place in the senate, and were soon acknowledged as the ordinary presidents of that venerable assembly. They received appeals from the distance of one hundred miles, and it was allowed as a principle of jurisprudence that all municipal authority was derived from them alone. In the discharge of his laborious employment, the governor of Rome was assisted by fifteen officers, some of whom had been originally his equals or even his superiors. The principal departments were relative to the command of a numerous watch, established as a safeguard against fires, robberies, and nocturnal disorders. The custody and distribution of the public allowance of corn and provisions, the care of the port, of the aqueducts, of the common sewers, and of the navigation and bed of the Tiber, the inspection of the markets, the theatres, and of the private as well as the public works. Their vigilance ensured the three principal objects of a regular police, safety, plenty, and cleanliness, and as proof of the attention of government to preserve the splendour and ornaments of the capital, a particular inspector was appointed for the statues, the guardian, as it were, of that inanimate people, which, according to the extravagant computation of an old writer, was scarcely inferior in number to the living inhabitants of Rome. About thirty years after the foundation of Constantinople, a similar magistrate was created in that rising metropolis, for the same uses and with the same powers. A perfect equality was established between the dignity of the two municipal and that of the four praetorian prefects. End of chapter 17, part 3 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon.